we're doing some branding work as a church right now. We did a little bit a few years ago when we were redoing our website, and we, you know, so as you enter the process of redoing your website, you're asking all these questions about how should that look, and what should you prioritize, and what should you say, and um, we're, we're, we're entering into a branding process once again as a church. We feel like we have an identity as a unique congregation in Chicago, but we have a really hard time articulating that succinctly. And you can, you know, the music is, is unique at Grace, and you can ask someone in the congregation to tell you about it. You can ask Davin to tell you about, you know, what's, the, what, what's, what's so unique about the music at Grace. And he can tell you, but it's going to take two hours to tell you. And so we're kind of asking some people to help us think through how do we say who we are uh, in a way that's faithful, but is also a little bit more um, easier to communicate with the world. And maybe it's because I've had some of these conversations on my brain that as I read the scripture this week, as I, just, as I, uh, I kept reading through it, I, I had this feeling that if we had one story that was like our, like this is who we are story, this might be it. And so as I read it this morning, if you've been going to Grace for a while, maybe, maybe you sort of think, oh, I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet this is what he noticed, or I'll, I'll bet this is what he's going to say. I'm going to say five things, five parallels um, that I noticed in this story that I thought, wow, that is who we try to be, or that is who we are as a church. I'm going to name five of those things pretty briefly. Um, so, so, you know, maybe as you're reading through, you make a mental note of, oh, or maybe I missed a few, and you thought, well, you didn't mention this, but this is who Grace is. Um, so so here's, the, here's the story from John 20, 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, that's the day of the resurrection, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, And the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first observation I noticed about this passage and about our community, the first similarity is, 
there are a group of people gathered together who used to follow Jesus and have a lot of confidence about what that looked like and where that would lead them. The disciples had plans about where where they were going and where Jesus was going to take them. They had their swords and their sheaths and they were arguing about who would be on the left and who would be on the right, who would be the greatest, and they marched to Jerusalem with a certain confidence about them. They had plans and they had all sorts of faith. But their religion, their piety, their confidence is shattered by the crucifixion. And understandably so. When we meet them, the door is locked and they are afraid and they do not have faith. They are despondent. Their faith is, as Richard Rohr might put it, deconstructed. And they don't know what to stand on. And that describes a lot of us in this room. At one point or another, maybe it happened for you a long time ago, or maybe you're in the midst of it right now. Grace has been a home for people whose faith has been fractured by experiences in the church, by doubts, by new ideas, by an unexplained absence of faith, by growth that causes your faith not to fit again. Each person's story is so unique, but there is a through line, a common thread of having had a certain type of faith, a certain definition of faith in Christianity that no longer fits. And often I think we're told that when it no longer fits, then it no longer exists. The disciples in this story do not know what it looks like to have faith anymore, to be a part of a community of faith anymore. And if that's where you find yourself, you're in good company. Secondly, the second thing I want to point out is that Jesus comes and stands in the version printed in your bulletins, it's among them. But the Greek word is ace mesos, which means in their midst. And in their midst is such a grace phrase. We say that a lot. We talk about the Holy Spirit being in our midst. We use that phrase pretty commonly. And John uses it twice in this passage, both when Jesus appears to the disciples the first time and then the second time when Thomas is in there. John seems to think it's fairly significant to give a geography to where Jesus appeared and he came in the middle, in their midst, in the center of where they were meeting. And beyond the similar language that that we use um, every week is this idea that when Jesus appears to the disciples, he stands in the middle of them. When this group of people gathers who used to have faith, Jesus comes and stands in the middle of their group. And in some ways, this is what we aim to do every week when we have communion at the very heart of our service, at the middle. Because we believe that when two or three are gathered, Christ is present there with them. And we believe that uniquely and mysteriously in the sacrament, Jesus promises by his spirit to be very present with us. And so we have this at the center of our service every week because we want to rest in the knowledge that Jesus is in our midst, in the center of where we are meeting. Jesus appears in the midst of this group of people trying to figure out what it means to have faith anymore. Third, there is doubting Thomas. He is called the twin, and perhaps he has a biological twin, but uh, many have said throughout the centuries that he is called the twin because he is our twin. 
that each of us is Thomas, both doubting and believing. Thomas is not with the disciples when Jesus first appears to them. I'd pay 20 bucks to find out where he was. I wonder if he was, maybe fell asleep, maybe it's not significant, maybe he just overslept the meeting, or maybe he had given up for a moment. We don't know. I, I, I really wish we could find out. We don't know where Thomas is. But when he comes back and hears the story they tell, he doesn't believe them at all. And he says, I'm going to have to see it for myself. I'm actually going to have to put my fingers through the holes in his hands and stick my fist into his very side if I'm going to believe you. But remarkably, a week later, though Thomas doesn't believe the story that the disciples have been telling all week long, Thomas is there in the room with them. He does not give up on the community of faith, even though he does not believe the story they tell him. He still belongs, and by belonging, he places himself in a position to believe. One of our refrains that we use very often is that you can belong before you believe. And Thomas embodies that principle. If Thomas cuts himself off from the disciples, says, I don't buy that, I'm out, and never comes back, I wonder if he ever sees Jesus, if he ever hears his voice, if he ever comes around to believing. I don't know. I don't think he does. There are obviously stories of Jesus, you know, like Saul, right? Saul on the road to Damascus is not in the community of faith, and Jesus still appears to him. So it can happen, of course, that Jesus can encounter you anywhere and everywhere. But the pattern usually in Scripture is like Thomas, where he doesn't give up on belonging to this community, even though he doesn't believe yet. And by doing that, he puts himself in a place where when Jesus appears in their midst, this time Thomas is there. And Jesus can say to Thomas, look, touch. Peace be yours. He doesn't believe, but he's there next week. Maybe that describes some of us. Fourth, there's an emphasis in this story on the wounds of Jesus. The disciples don't recognize, they don't rejoice or recognize Jesus as Lord until they see his hands and his side. And the same goes for Thomas. He doesn't just say, I need need to see him risen. He says, I need to see the wounds. I need to see the marks so that I know that it's really him. One of the things we talk about often, some of the language we use, is we we use the phrase cruciform quite a bit, which which is a word that combines the Latin word for cross and form, the form of the cross, the cross shape, the shape of the cross, the cross form. And what we mean when we talk about living a cruciform life is that Jesus' death on the cross is not only a historical event that accomplishes something that we ought to remember, but it's a pattern that ought to be followed. And another way of saying this is to say that Jesus takes his wounds with him even after he is resurrected. The resurrection does not undo the wounds of the cross, it gives them their meaning. Likewise, for us, Jesus' resurrection does not mean that we don't have to live cruciform lives, but rather that in living cross-formed lives, lives that take the form of the cross, we find our ultimate meeting and our truest selves. And one last one. 
that I want to mention is that when Jesus appears in the midst of this group of people whose faith has been deconstructed and he shows them the wounds, he says to them, peace be yours. Shalom Alechem. Peace be unto you. We pass the peace of Christ every week. This is a tradition that goes back even further than Jesus saying it, but we sort of recognize that Jesus, this is what he says to his disciples when he appears. We pass the peace of Christ to one another. But again, beyond just the language of it, more significant than the linguistic similarity is the idea that Jesus, without their asking, without their permission, without the faintest hope on the part of this people gathered together, stands in the middle of them and extends peace to them as a pure gift. None of the disciples would ever find faith again unless it was offered as gift. And none of them would trust unless they encountered him. And how can they encounter him unless he has risen? Jesus appears in their midst and doesn't scold them for giving up, doesn't chide them for having their faith deconstructed. He says, peace be yours. What does it mean to be a part of the same body as the disciples in our text? What does it mean to share the same heritage as that group? Last week was Easter and many of you brought flowers to the service to decorate our space. Our artwork was finished. You can see there's little animals poking out of the out of the. Um, the palms, I don't know if you noticed that, the kids made all those animals. There's new life, and we had flowers last week to join that and um, to decorate the space. And afterwards, Lisa and I brought the flowers over to Journey Care Hospice Center, um, which is actually where Tina Rice used to work, who happens to also be with us this morning, which is super exciting. Um, and, and, and we've been doing it for a few years, and um, it's a pretty powerful experience, And it wouldn't work to bring more than two people. Uh, But I was writing about it. And then I found myself that I was writing about it, but I was really writing about it for you. Because I want to, like, bring you into that space a little bit. And so I'm going to read what I wrote um, about doing that last week. Lisa carries a Costco bag with a few bouquets balanced against one another. And I carry a box with maybe a dozen bouquets The flowers create one canopy so I can only differentiate the bouquets by the colors and types of flowers. The lady at the front desk asks if we are visiting someone. I take a half breath of gratitude as I answer no. Not today. Most people who come through these doors are visiting someone who is dying. We are directed to the fifth floor and we enter the elevator trying to remember how many years it is that we've been doing this. The doors open and we walk into a large, open, circular space with rooms along the outside and it looks and smells like a nursing home. Machines beeping, some furniture for waiting. And we explain to the nurses why we are here and they say it is so nice. Lisa and I take the flowers into the staff room and tidy up the bouquets. We trim off the dead flowers and discard any extra green. And when we have our bouquets ready, I bring out two and ask where we should put them. And the nurse The nurses suggest that we take them room to room. It would mean so much to the family, one tells us. We haven't done that before, and I don't know if I believe her. Would it really mean so much to have a random person place a mason jar of tulips on the nightstand? She's the expert, so I take her for her word. 
I knock gently and peek past the curtain of the first room, and there are three or four people sitting together around the bed of a woman. They talk in hushed voices. The woman in the bed lies still under a white sheet. I extend a bouquet of flowers and ask, Would you like a bouquet of flowers? The nurse was right. It means so much to them. I am surprised. Happy Easter, I say. Lisa and I are both choking back tears after the first room. Lisa just lost a sister a month ago. She's not sure she can continue. The scene is so familiar, too familiar, she says. This pattern continues for each of the 13 rooms on the floor. In some rooms, the patient is very old. In other rooms, they are not. Most of them are not awake or cannot be awake anymore. Each breath is work. I can hear each inhale, each exhale. There is no family in a few rooms, only the person lying peacefully on their beds. When there's no family in the room, I feel obligated to say something, to do something. So I whisper what I say to the kids each week during communion. God loves you. God created you. And God is proud of you. Then I make the sign of the cross. Feels absolutely silly. But it also feels absolutely sacred. It's jarring to preach the resurrection on Easter. To say to one another, Behold, everything old has passed away, and all things have been made new. To hear the kids saying, untrue, untrue, you are making death untrue. And to then step into a space where death is imminent and feels so final. But the act of bringing flowers into a hospice center on Easter feels like a small act of resurrection. A small protest against the finality of death. It feels like the work of the church to bring flowers to the dying, to tell the Easter story even when it feels absolutely silly. It is the work of the church to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ with whatever means we have, and sometimes all we have is a mason jar of tulips. The crucified and risen Christ stood in the midst of a group of people who did not know what it meant to have faith and offered them his peace. And then he sent them out to bear witness to the resurrection. The crucified and risen Christ stands in our midst and offers us his peace and he sends us out to bear witness to the crucified and risen Christ. Let your lives this week be full of small acts of resurrection. Flowers to someone who is confused by them when they receive them. A text of encouragement to someone who's not in your recent texts. A card that brings hope because it's handwritten. An unnecessary generosity to an employee. An unexpected affirmation of someone's gifts. An Instagram story that can trace its joy back to Easter. It often doesn't feel like it, but we are not so unlike the disciples whose lives are changed on Easter Sunday. And the same Holy Spirit that came through Jesus' breath on Peter, James, and John rests now on us, in our midst, 
calling us to bring flowers to the dying, to preach good news to the poor. And if they can do it, so can we. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.